0: Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. Today, we are talking about Pope Leo the Great and three liturgy lessons that he gives us. This is just another one of those added to the pile of conversations that I had where I didn't really have a ton of interest going into it because I just didn't know what we were going to be talking about. But these three points that Pope Leo the Great talks about and that Chris reiterates are so amazing and they are definitely going to enrich your mass going experience. Also, I am so sorry that we did not get a podcast episode out last week. Between getting all three of us scheduled together in one room to actually sit down and record the podcast and some family matters that I had to take care of, we just did not get it done. However, we will be putting out two episodes this week. So today, you will get episode 15, and later on this week, you will get episode 16. So... Be patient. Again, we are very sorry, but we do want to stay on schedule with an episode a week. So without further ado, episode 15 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy.
1: I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The Liturgy is what enculturates the Gospel
0: for us. What are you, some kind of ultra
2: boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's
1: pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep.
0: The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys.
2: We did this last time where I got to talk like an NPR radio announcer, and I liked it so much I said, can we do it again? So live from... St. Patrick's Cathedral Parish in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the Liturgy Guys. And leading us off today on the Liturgy Guys is the epitome of Liturgy Guy, Chris Karski. So I, I have, I'm Liturgy Guyness. You are I'm the ontologic... Okay, class. that's enough, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no! That's enough. You are the uh, fullness, the Platonic form. You guys
0: don't have the rights to use that music that I just real. made, just well, so oh, you know.
2: Yeah, well, we we're going to talk about. Are we talking about the rights, Chris? You're in charge no. of this one.
1: No, we are talking about uh, talking about liturgy, guidance. This is uh, I want I want to put forward like a real great patron for uh, the liturgical movement, liturgical celebration. Liturgical I really movements. like that idea. Yeah, you Chris. Like that? Can we keep so talking that, like no, this? We the whole time? No, we can't. We can't. People are going to stop listening. So the. Uh, uh, Who is a good patron? When you think of uh, liturgical... Movement or whatever liturgical praxis. Who's a kind of a patron saint that you would Gregory
2: the Great, Gregory oh. chant.
1: Yeah, that's a good. That's yeah. He would be one of them. Pius, Pius the, the tenth. Saint. Pius the, the tenth. tenth. Yeah. In Dennis Star- is stealing all my answers. Star-
0: Pius <laughs> okay. the fifth wrote the missal. Pious. The there's a lot of Pius, So I would just like three out of the twelve. Pius so we'll the give 12. you points for that. Pius the eleventh. Pius the
2: Tenth and so twelfth. Excellent. What do you guys mm, think of Pius yeah. the thirteenth? Well, I don't think he's the real pope. He's in. Where is he in? He's in North, your basement, North Dakota, North Dakota or something. Anyway, he's in. Be. I hope so. But there were those patristic guys who settled a lot of questions early on. They don't mm. get a lot of credit because it was a long time ago. Yeah.
0: So who this are you leading us I'm to?
1: I'm leading please? you to uh, Pope Saint Leo the Great, Ooh, as yeah. an
0: excellent liturgy guy. I know that a- guy. kind of
1: a patron saint. of Do you know? You know a Leo, right?
0: Well, I don't know him. Know him, but like I know him. Know him. Yeah. Like you, as in he's my confirmation saint. So why did you choose him? Because you knew you'd be a liturgy guy. Sometime? no, uh, no. I think that's oh. just providential. But uh, I chose him because. My grandfather's middle name uh, was Leo, and my confirmation sponsor, which is my oldest brother, his confirmation saint was Leo, so it was like more of a traditional thing mm-hmm, that I mm-hmm. was drawn to. My brother had a much cooler name for his confirmation. He, was it he, Rediger? It was not Rediger. Oh. It was Blaze, which is just a cool name. Yeah, it is. And, mm-hmm. that's, and why he, that's why he chose it, <laughs> just because yeah. it was cool sounding. Mm-hmm. So
1: Good. Well, you, we're going to try to make you appreciate your uh, confirmation saint. All right, let's do
0: it, because right. I could read my paper that I wrote on it, and it was probably not comprehensive about <laughs> anything substantial. It might be perfect
1: for this podcast. Might, I should probably
0: read it, actually. it's It would take two minutes. What do all you got right. for us, Okay,
1: so I want to put forward uh, three uh, three liturgical lessons from Leo the Great. Wow. Why he is a I excellent I don't
2: know anything about any of these. Guy. Really? You don't yeah. know any? I mean, I've heard of the guy, but that's uh, all I okay, could do. Do you know when he lived? Uh, Who was the first millennium?
1: (laughs) Give me a thousand year millennial.
2: Uh, (laughs) Give me a thousand year range. I might hit the dartboard. (laughs) Yeah. He was a millennial
1: before they were millennials. Right. Before it was cool to be a millennial. So he was a middle of the fifth century. So a lot of these activities uh, are going to be, yeah, you did. As Jesse would say. Yeah. Are going to be from around 450 or so. All right. All right. And so the first one I want to put forward is a liturgical lesson, Uh, I'll, I'll call it a hypostatic liturgy yeah
2: yeah time. let's don't break that one down. down they have
0: dryer sheets Break it for that? down. do you remember what oh. you, what's the hypostatic union why don't we start with that okay so hypo means hippo or
2: hypo hypo means hypo. beneath below like a hypodermic needle goes under your skin mm-hmm. and a stasis is to stand or okay. be still so what's a hypostasis be standing stand underneath. below
1: stand below so, so it speaks of something um essential Something Foundation. ontological, foundational. 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 Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so a hypostasis means like a, a like a an entity, a being. A person, mm-hmm. all right? And so we speak of Jesus being a single hypostasis. But what is the, what, what's united in his hypostasis?
2: So they usually talk about that in relation to Christ's natures, right? Human nature and divine nature. Yeah, bingo. Right. So the hypostatic union, thanks, good mm-hmm. job, is how the two complete
1: natures, complete human nature and complete divine nature come together into a
2: single person. Isn't right? this uh, Chalcedon? Yeah. Council?
0: Hit it again. Oh.
2: Yeah, As but, they, but, I learned that from the Deacon Payne video: "Profess chalcedon, or take a beaten." Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's the good. Deacon that...
0: Payne. Wait, what is that? Well,
2: oh, that was a thing that seminarians made years ago. It was kind of a parody thing about a guy who was a deacon and he was going around correcting everybody. And he'd be walking along with someone, and then they say, "Well, I think that Jesus is, you know, two natures that are unrelated, and he runs in and tackles them and you know, on the ground, and they, profess
0: chalcedon or take a beaten." <laughs> oh, that's good. So he's like Saint Nicholas. Didn't he slap Arian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that back
1: in uh, the Nicaea days.
0: Arius, what was his name? Hmm. Arius. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So tell so, us about this. Okay, but before here. there was Chalcedon,
1: there was the Council of Ephesus. Oh yeah. All right, So that was uh, what 431. Right. And so right. you uh, lost me on hypo. So yeah. Okay. So what <laughs> happened at the Council of Ephesus? What were they addressing?
2: Uh, Christological controversies. Yes. Yes. Be
1: more specific. I can't. Nestorianism. Oh yeah. Okay. What do you do you remember anything about Nestorianism? That's a, I don't. It's a good thing you didn't take Nestorius as your confirmation. I'm. Yeah. Okay. It was close. So what was Nestorianism? Something about Christological controversy. That's right. But what what, what was his <laughs> what? Okay. Why was he a heretic? He. What did he get wrong about the Christological hypostatic? Something question? about
2: the divine nature being something.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, he was more emphasizing the human nature of Christ, which is not a, this is a good thing, right? We believe Jesus had a, a, a complete human nature. But what Nestorius held was that he was he was emphasizing the human so much that he said Jesus was a human person. We don't think that, right? So that, and Mary, consequently, right? you've heard this term, yeah, perhaps, so don't theo, think that theo- Theotokos. Theotokos, right? oh, yes. So the Nestorius would say that Mary was not the mother of God. She was not the Theotokos. Oh, uh, she so was the, the mother thing. of the human, human person. Just his human nature alone. Or even the, he made a person out of him, a human person out of mm-hmm. him. Okay, we believe Jesus is one divine person with two complete What's natures.
2: What's a person, theologically speaking? Do you know? Uh, we don't have time for that. Okay, <laughs> okay.
1: Boethius will give you a definition. Uh, of Intellectual substance of an individual nature, or something like that. Yeah. But that doesn't come in necessarily to this to this question. Okay, so at uh, the Council of Ephesus in 431, there was really an overemphasis on the human. Uh, part
2: of Christ. Right? Kind of like the
1: 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. Hold that thought. Oh, so 20 years later, the pendulum kind of swings the opposite direction. And at the Council of Chalcedon 451, right, there's an overemphasis on the divine, divine nature. right? And so this heresy is called, do you know what it is?
2: monophysitism Phacetism. and the
0: heretic there is a I eutiches. need to brush up on my heresies Yeah,
2: no, it's a little tough to be hard on these guys because this is the first time they're trying to figure this out right Constantine in 312 says okay Christianity you can flourish and they have to figure this stuff out they have 100 years to work out these very yeah,
1: complicated I couldn't things. agree with you more I mean we're kind of standing on the shoulders of you know the, the people who had to work this out and we you know in hindsight we
2: can kind of be yeah they joking. did all the hard work they we're did just, we're just copying it's not That's like right. today's heretics who have it all Handed them on the plate. Yeah. And oh my say gosh. no to it. Today's
0: heretics have it so easy. Oh, they're the worst.
1: <laughs> okay. So you've got uh, Ephesus 431 overemphasizing the human. You've got uh, Chalcedon 451 overemphasizing the divine.
2: Monophysi- That's so monophysitism.
1: So what Monophysitism believed is when Jesus Mono- took on human uh, nature, right? He kind of took it to himself and morphed it into some sort of. Uh, I don't know, like uh, a Captain America sort of came, mm-hmm. it morphed it into a kind of a quasi human divine thing. But whatever happened, it, it wasn't two to be, natures. It, no, no, That's it ceased to be human. It right. ceased to
0: be human. All right. So for I 50, like that uh, superhero analogy. Well, I, I think yeah. there's something. Spider-Man to doesn't
2: have two natures. He's a guy with superpowers, right? Mm-hmm. When he gets bitten by the spider.
0: Yeah,
1: but he's kind of a mutant. You know Mm. he's kind of a a, a bizarre sort of human, and we don't believe that about Christ. He is completely and wholly human, right? So what um, it is nature. Mm. So what uh, Saint Leo. So in four fifty one, the Council of Chalcedon says no. Jesus has a complete, integral human nature. He doesn't lose it. It's not a mask. It's not a disguise. It's not morphed into some monofusis. It's a complete and integral human nature. And it's Pope Saint Leo the Great. Isn't that the kissing disease, (laughs) monofusis?
2: No, that's, that's something good. else. No, okay. Was that Jesse that made that joke?
0: Because it sounded like a Jesse joke. Okay, so How Saint, did you like that, Jesse? It was great. I All right. Loved good. It. All right. So anyway, Saint
1: Leo signs off on this as the Pope of Rome. He writes what's called the Tome of Saint Leo that approves that. That's uh, safeguarding the uh, uh, the human nature of Jesus. So the formula that comes out of the Council of uh, Chalcedon is we believe in one, one divine person, person with two, two. complete two. and unmixed. Natures one holy divine and one
2: holy human. So one person okay. with two natures. Right. Not okay. two people with one nature or one Not person two with one pe- nature. Exactly.
1: All right. So what does this have to do with the liturgy? Yeah. This question. insight comes from uh, Father Louis Bouyer, who talks about monophysite liturgists and Nestorian liturgists. Ooh, right? Which one are you, Jesse? So if you can have an error about the, the hypostasis of Jesus, this can become an error about what you believe about the liturgy. Right. right? And so if you're a monophysite liturgist, your liturgy is something that is so ethereal, yeah. transcendent, otherworldly, which it is, but if it's that to the exclusion of anything that's living, breathing, human, terrestrial, earthly, mm-hmm. then you're you're kind of morphing the liturgy
2: hmm. into a monophysite error. You know, that's interesting because I remember studying these uh, modernist architects in the early 20th century. They were called the crystal chain architects and they read the book of Revelation and they saw that it was made of crystal so they decided to make all these clear glass buildings, which was really an anti architectural move because you didn't have architecture all you had was clear glass and they thought they were escaping kind of the pesky physicality by and doing something higher and better so they were monophysite
0: architects. They were. They I were. never thought of that before.
2: Also, yeah. Danny, you as excited as I am about that, Jesse, uh, the no, crystal chain architects.
0: No, but that sounds like something you'd read in a comic book, like the crystal chain architect. <laughs> <It's> like like <laughs> Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was made out of crystal, so I guess. There you would, go. See? but uh, Dennis Monophysite here, Fortress. Would this be akin to something that you've mentioned before uh, th- about the three isms, clericalism, or congregationalism, focusing too much on the... The human part of the liturgy. It would be the
2: opposite of that. It's not so much the human part, but it's the non-human part that Chris is talking about.
0: Well, Well, right, but there's two. There's focusing too much on that the ritual or the or the liturgy or the or Christ as the divine. Or there's focusing too much on hey, this is just a bunch of us getting together as friends as as humans. It could be, but
1: I think you could celebrate the ritual or see the assembly or see the priest uh, either through erroneous monophysite lenses or erroneous Nestorius lenses. Hey, I'm,
2: I have erroneous monophysite lenses. <laughs> see, those
1: right are very So this is the other extreme is the Nestorian liturgists see things liturgical as too human mm-hmm. and not nearly transcendent enough. And mm-hmm. so when you mentioned, you threw out that line about uh, sounds like 1970s liturgy. Yeah. You know, so
2: Jesus is your buddy and yeah, he's and, your pal. And, and, and
1: Father is not alter Christus in persona Christi capitis. I mean, he's just you know, the head he, of the earthly he's, community. He's Bill,
2: exactly. He's the host exactly. of the dinner. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so these, these uh,
2: heresies never go away, do they? They no, just they pop don't. up again in a new form.
1: But anyway, that's the first liturgical lesson from Leo the Great. Is wow. kind of the warning against monophysite liturgical celebration and Nestorian liturgical celebration. So right? Too earthly. Which or one too should heaven. it be? Both. It has to be both. It has to be uh, as that's human as it question, can be, Chris? and as terrestrial. And to uh, to skew that is is to fall into kind of a would the terrestrial
2: air? be subject to the spiritual, the way that internal participation is always more important than external participation. They're both mm-hmm. necessary, but they're in a hierarchy.
1: Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium speaks just in those terms very early on in its first paragraphs, but I think, um, no, you know, when when you, God willing, get to heaven someday, you don't morph into some angelic thing, you remain a human being. And see, and this is one of the beautiful things about the liturgy and cel- celebrating it rightly is when you leave the liturgy, you should not just be more heavenly, you should be a better man. You should be a better father, you know, a better citizen of this world too. And so it it works to, um, to perfect both of uh, your own destinies, you know? Both of my so, destinies, mm-hmm. well, your human destiny and oh. your spiritual destiny.
0: Whoa, oh. yeah. we got real deep just now. But we have two more hey, things. Yeah, we got two, two more. more lessons. Okay, the second thing is, and if you liturgi- want to hear them, you <laughs> should donate. 10... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the second liturgical lesson
1: I would say that comes from uh, Leo the Great has to do with the priestly heart. The priestly heart. The priestly okay. heart. The priestly heart. What does it mean to be a priest?
2: What does the priesthood have to do with your heart? Well, a priest offers, okay. and offers sacrifice, offers himself out and, of and, love.
1: Okay, and what's at the core C-O-R of yourself? Your heart. Your heart, right? So priesthood has to do with offering your heart, and, bum, and bum, bum, yeah, that's bum, exactly bum, what it's about. It's like
2: about. Aztec stuff, huh?
1: Uh, <laughs> in some ways it is. Uh That could be another podcast, but there's something to that. You know, the one thing, we've talked about this before, I think, the one thing that God the Father, as omnipotent as he is, that he cannot take from you is the the love of your heart. Consequently, that's the one thing that he wants is the very love of your heart. I figure it's God wants the one thing he can't The one thing he can't get. The only way (sighs) he's going to get this is if you give it to him, right? And so – and all all of the, what's one of the theological points of a church's altar is that it sacramentalizes the heart of boom, boom, of boom, the boom, priest, boom. not just the the priest who stands there at the head of the assembly, but everybody in there. That altar uh, represents the priestly heart. Okay, so there's this gem
0: of a line from uh, Leo the Great. So it, his feast day. He said gem of a line. I thought he was, combined, like, gem of, gem of a line was like a, one of those heresies or something. <laughs> Got it. Gem, gem of a line.
2: Jeff of a It, it <laughs> might be. It might be by the
1: time I get done with it. Jesse, so if you, you have him talk. as your patron. When, when, yeah. is his, uh, when is his feast day?
0: Well, we just had it um, last week, right? November 13th? I think the tenth. The tenth, okay. I'm pretty sorry. sure it is the tenth, actually. Man, I'm okay, gonna have so, to
1: edit that out. <laughs> so in his in the office of readings for his feast day on November tenth, he says this about priesthood and heart. He says, All regenerated in Christ are consecrated priests by the oil of the Holy Spirit. So that beyond the special service of the orde- ministry of ordained priest, all spiritual and mature Christians know that they are sharers in the office of the priesthood. That leaves Jesse
2: out. Wait, what? Spiritual and mature. Oh, got it.
1: <laughs> what is more priestly, he asked, than to promise the Lord a pure conscience and to offer him in love unblemished victims on the altar of one's heart? Mm. Ah, yeah.
2: unblemished victim. So
1: the spiritual and mature Christian who has been baptized and made a priest and shares an office of Christ's priesthood knows that he is to offer unblemished victims on the altar of one's heart. Now, if that ain't the pinnacle of active participation, I don't know what is. I believe you meant to say isn't. That's right. Thank yeah, you. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That is that's
0: the pinnacle of active participation. We'll be so, quoting Saint Christopher. So this second, later, that ain't yeah, the pinnacle. Yeah, yeah.
2: All right. So
1: the second liturgical lesson from Leo the Great is how to
2: actualize your baptismal priesthood. Yeah, I don't quite understand everything you just said there. Okay. So your heart is an altar, or well, you put your heart. I'm on the altar. I'm glad to not be
0: alone yeah, yeah. for once in that thought.
1: And what if it's similar to? And I don't know if this, no, this will clarify anything. But they say Jesus is the priest the altar and the offering of his sacrifice right right and so what the altar is represents Christ who is the priest offering it the, the gift which is offered his heart right and the altar is the place from which it's offered it's are Christ
2: we do all that too exactly so we put it on the altar which is Christ's heart but in a sense our heart is a little altar too
1: yeah oh. yeah or the again that uh, when you see that altar you know to remind you that I need to get somehow I need to get as much as my heart on that altar as I possibly can, joining it with the, the heart of Jesus and giving it to God the Father. There you go. Yeah.
0: I want the atriums and the ventricles, ventricles all all of them on all there. All of it. All it yeah. And if you can do that, then you become a spiritual immature
2: Christian. Nice. Yes. All right.
1: You want to go to the third liturgical lesson? All right,
0: let's do that next time.
2: Well, what does an up. immature Christian do? <laughs> they mostly want... It to be oh, I way. can answer that. Yeah, yeah. How I do you worship, Chris?
1: Oh, well, I, I think about uh, you know the Packer game that's about to start, or I you know try to get my kid to quit picking her nose during a oh, mass. Me too. You criticize <laughs> the vestments,
2: or you oh, look around absolutely. at the architecture and think, what was that architect doing? What that's idiot right. pastor built this ugly church?
1: Yeah. Short, oh, should should I introduce, I introduce her to what that? What
2: well-meaning, t- holy pastor nonetheless built this ugly church? Well,
1: who had assistance from... Uh, <laughs>
2: from Dennis McNamara as a consultant. <laughs>
1: you no, know, you can do a million things that uh, signify kind of an immature, incomplete understanding of what the baptized priest is supposed to be doing during the liturgy. And
2: this is what Vatican II and the liturgical movement rediscovered, that the, the proper participation in the liturgy wasn't just running around being busy in the rites, although that's good. It was offering yourself as a victim. So you could be resurrected as a victim. I know I'm talking too much.
0: No, no, it's fine. No,
1: I mean, that's uh, active participation in liturgy is they aim to be considered before all others. And, you know, what, uh, again, as you say, the liturgical movement in the council was trying to, um, you know, bring to the surface was this very thing that that Leo the Great is talking about, which makes it all the more um, sad that we've associated, you know, being an active member of the liturgy as being the lector, the server, the. Well, when you say we, you
0: mean like. You know, th- the royal we, other, the, other, <laughs> other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's <laughs> right. the... Here's right, will the, you get to the third one? I already? will,
1: I will. <laughs> the third liturgical uh, lesson from Leo the Great is the sacramental principle. What's the sacramental principle, Dennis?
2: That is a guy who heads up a school, goes to math No, that's a lot.
1: P-A-L.
2: Oh, God. Tell, yeah. Jesse's mm-hmm. attempts <laughs> at humor are really What's bad. the sacramental principle? Uh, that earthly things make present spiritual realities.
1: Right. That we communicate using signs and that we receive uh, through signs. Okay. Now, what is that? Why did you say it? Heavenly things? What are the heavenly things or what is the heavenly thing which is mediated to us and made present to us through earthly signs? Jesus. Jesus. Right. It's always Jesus. Yeah. You were uh, more or less paraphrasing Leo the Great there. So oh, this, uh, way to go. Yeah, this is the third liturgical lesson. When will I become Dennis principle. the Great? He says in UK.
2: yeah, <laughs> Dionysius Magnus.
0: Today you were Dennis the Late. Secundus.
2: <laughs>
1: Nailed it. So the, uh, the Catechism, of fact, will invoke uh, Leo the Great in its section on uh, where it talks about uh, the sacraments being sacraments of Christ. So he has this famous maxim that uh, liturgical guys everywhere should know. What was visible in our Savior has...
2: Passed, passed over into the mystery. That's exactly. Odo what,
1: what was vis- what well, Leo
2: the Great? Odo founded found it from Leo the Great. Yeah.
1: What was visible in our Savior, which is from Christ, has passed over into our sacrament. What that What that means is what Jesus did in the flesh, face to face, two thousand years ago, fed, healed, consoled, taught, died, suffered, rose, redeemed. All of those things that He did uh, in the flesh two thousand years ago, He
2: still does now through the medium of sacraments that is so 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 important every month i have a thing like this is the number one thing everybody needs to know but this is it right because christ did all this stuff he healed people he had miracles he gave his body on the cross and, and you think oh well he went back to the father so now we just have a bunch of human beings running around doing a bunch of rituals but that's Christ's image of the Father, sacrament of the Father. The church is the sacrament of Christ on earth, continuing the work of Christ. And most people, I don't think, see it that way. They get caught up in the institutional model of the church rather than the continuing action of Christ. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and the, the nature of the catechesis that the church encourages today is this mystagogical or mystagogical catechesis. Hey, mystagogy! <laughs> that helps you to see Jesus as the reality of of everything, right? Because sometimes our perception just stops at the smells and bells, and it's it doesn't hard
2: penetrate. Two hours in the car with Jesse. See, he's the, Jesus is the source of everything, even Jesse. Especially yeah. liturgical things.
1: Yeah. yeah okay. Believe it or not. So okay, we go to okay. Mass today, have another look and see if you can't see Jesus' <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> He just made a Jesus face
1: at me and okay, what, so, what's a Jesus with that so thing he, you're just in. These are the three liturgical lessons that I think are very important for us today from Leo the Great. The hypostatic liturgy that is completely divine and completely human. It's the priestly heart that a priest offers himself uh, on the altar of the church and the sacramental principle that what was visible in our
2: Savior has passed over into his mysteries. Into so the next time sacraments. you go to confession, you say, this priest is there. Why do I have to confess my sins to another person? Well, it's because he's the sacrament of Christ. I, the priest says, I and forgive re- your sins. And
1: the reality. Yeah. In reality, he's Jesus.
2: Right. Yeah. There you I go. toss it to a question? <laughs> And now we go to Liturgy Guys' question, everybody's favorite part of the Liturgical Institute. Uh,
0: Liturgical Institute, no, Liturgy Guys. Da, 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 da. Today we have an extra special question from Rudiger. It's probably from Rudiger. Nobody likes to tell us who they are. Anyway, you, you spoiled the moment, Jesse. I can always edit the moment.
2: And now <laughs> we have an extra special question from Rudiger. So, why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, If you want to serve the Church and
1: do liturgical studies from the heart of the Church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the Magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
0: Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care?
2: Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone?
0: And we have a question. All right, this one uh, is from Father Conrad. Father Conrad says, Dear Liturgy Guys, Thanks for the great podcast. I loved your recent oh, podcast thanks, on the cosmos and in the liturgy, and it reminded me of the chapel at the North American College in Rome. In the courtyard at the entrance to the chapel, there are depictions of the zodiac on the ceiling and a mosaic of St. Francis's Canticle of the Living Creatures on the floor. The question was always asked about the symbolism of the Zodiac at the entrance to the chapel, and I was wondering if you knew in particular its reason for being there and know of any other use of the Zodiac in liturgy. Thanks in Christ, Father Conrad.
2: Zodiac is a funny thing to have in a church. There's St. Clement's Church in Chicago, which has this beautiful dome. Oh, And yeah. these big angels, and upright at the very right top of the dome, there's a little blue ring with these funny symbols, and there are the 12 signs of the Zodiac.
0: Oh, I do. I have seen that.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, we've talked about this before, how many stars and planets and so on. But the 12 signs of the Zodiac were considered a typological prefigurement for the Gentiles, for the pagans. So you had 12 tribes, you had 12 apostles, then you have 12 signs of the Zodiac. And so... It talks about different kinds of people. This notion of the movement of the stars, is ordered by God in a certain way, and when certain things would pass through other things, you would have the notion of something important. So the three wise men who followed the star, for instance, were astrologers. You know, or the stra- not just merely astronomers, but they were trying to interpret the meaning of the stars. And although you know, we wouldn't want to go back to that today in some kind of occult practice. You know, like, hey, baby, what sign are you? You know. Uh, and today you should buy, you know, <laughs> clothes, and tomorrow you should get a new job. Like we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is the cosmological prefiguring of the world. That even for the pagans or even for the, the non-Jews, there was a prefiguring in the world of how things should be. And I think it's in spirit of liturgy. And you, Chris, are the, the mm-hmm. master of spirit of the liturgy. <laughs> Cardinal Ratzinger talks about the stars that the wise men uh, followed and how they were ordained so that all the stars would be in the right place, right over. The birth spot of Christ.
1: I can't. I don't remember that, but I remember when he talks about uh, Abraham taking Isaac up on Mount Moriah, that the the springtime constellation of the zodiac sign is the Aries, and so he says, even the stars were twinkling out. Ram caught in a thicket. Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Lamb of God. And so, yeah, even the yeah even the, the the cosmos, the stars are. Revealing God to us.
2: Right. And so there are people, you know they talk about Jupiter, they talk about Venus and you have a king and you have a, a virgin, you know, a virginal woman, and if, when the king and the virgin come together, and there was a big thing not too long ago about this, the stars where the Venus you know, some, something Jupiter would, would was coming through the womb of the, the Venus, constellation right? was going to that would the signify the, the birth of Christ in the world. So the thing about the zodiac is, if you understand it as typological prefigurement of the order of the world as God gave it, not only for the Jews and those they would speak to, but those others who would need to understand Christ as well. Not looking backwards to go back to some sort of pagan idolatry or some sort of uh, weird occult practice, but to say that even that God ordained so we could know Christ.
0: Fantastic. So uh, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions Thank you and God bless.